Hey folks, I'm David Goldstein. I'm Brian Brinkman. And I'm Tom Marshall. And we are back with part two of uh, our Beyond the Pond interview with Tom Marshall. As you know, this is uh, the Beyond the Pond podcast, the podcast which Brian, myself, and this time Tom use fish as a means getting the listener to uh, go beyond the pond and listen to some Nam Jam bands. So, you know what we do, you know what the intro is, now we're just going to jump back in. I think we wanted to kind of pick up, Tom, kind of how did we get here? How did we get to where we are right now from a musical, from a lyrical standpoint? And um, you and I had been talking kind of before we went to record about kind of your timeline your from genesis to revelation timeline. yes um tell us just a little bit about kind of your origins as a listener records that you really connected with and kind of like that pathway for you kind of through adolescence sure um I can plunge in deep and probably go into like solo narrative mode, and it might not be an interview anymore. But uh, <laughs> I mean, feel free. By uh, all as, means, because <laughs> we'll, we'll, we'll I was thinking in. about this and thinking there's no like there's no quick way to say it, but maybe we can intersperse it when I mention a song or an album or something. Yeah. With actual music and but um, <laughs> the way I was thinking about this was um, it's defined in a way my musical background. Uh, is defined by my uh, schooling. And really when I went to Princeton Day School is when it was firmly defined, and that was in eighth grade. Okay. Um, prior to that, I think I had said before, I was like a Beatles guy. Yeah. And, uh, you know, um, Trey and I later in life, uh, when we were writing, um, uh, it was the Cook Cabin uh, writing session, and I want to think what song might have gotten to fish from there. Uh, oh, maybe Let Me Lie. Okay. Uh, yeah, that one was one. Uh, there were there was a couple others, but in any case, um, around the table uh, there, uh, some some friends had shown up, and all of a sudden I started. Someone mentioned something about a Broadway show, and I said, "Well, my only Broadway show that I that I know from start to finish by heart." is Jesus Christ Superstar, because my parents had that album, Let It Be, and Abbey Road. Oh, and uh, Bridge Over Troubled Water. And it turns out Trey knows every single word and song from uh, Jesus Christ Superstar as well. So that also, I have to say, has some part of my formation. That's the inception, right? (laughs) Probably, possibly. We watched that back... In junior high school, in our music class, yeah, which in retrospect seems kind of odd, given some of the lyrics or the the overtones of the lyrics, yeah, but it's so great. And it's also like the Ro- the Roman soldiers had Nazi helmets and machine guns, and that is some crazy stuff. Maybe imagery that nowadays wouldn't pass muster, you know, with the PTA club. Right, no. <laughs> <laughs> Just remember the whole thing with King Herod and so you are the Christ, the great Jesus Christ. I think that was. Lin-Manuel Miranda's inspiration for, um, in Hamilton, when he did, like, King George. Oh, so you are the Christ, you're the, the great, great Jesus Christ. Christ. <laughs> uh, prove, prove to me, me that you're no fool. Walk, Walk across, across my, my swimming pool. pool. If you do that for me, well, I'll let you go free. That's Come on, so... King of the Jews. You are the Christ, you're the great Jesus Christ. Prove to me that you're divine. Change my water into wine. That's all you need to. Then I'll know it's all true. Come on, King of the Jews. Ooh. Jesus, you just won't believe. 
<laughs> so, so anyway, Trey and I sang every song for these two friends that were there that night. And uh, I should say, hey, Trey, you were breaking a rule by having friends over because that's one of our writing rules is no friends. But No friends. All right. We overlooked it that night. <laughs> so uh, uh, in eighth grade, I arrived at a very musical Princeton Day School grade, and all my friends were drummers. Trey was a drummer at the time. Uh, my friend Mark Daubert was a drummer. My friend Peter Catoni was a drummer. And so the two pillar bands that they kind of turned me on to that I totally um, went deep into were Yes and Genesis. Okay. And that put me immediately onto the progressive rock side of our grade, which was almost divided in half by the other half, which was like Springsteen and the band okay. guys. And like we almost had to pretend that we didn't like the other side's music. It was so elitist. <laughs> it, was, it, was, it was really incredibly that, that much of a division between them. And um, Trey uh, managed to stay out of the fray and skated above it because he liked both equally. And he eventually took me to Grateful Dead show. We saw Jerry a couple times together. Um, <clears throat> but <clears throat> that was firmly in the other side. For me, it was progressive. It was art rock. Okay. And so, yes, um, the drummer uh, for the significant Yes albums that matter for me, that's the Yes album, which is their first album, I believe, um, and then Fragile and Close to the Edge, all had the drummer Bill Bruford. Okay. Mm. And he was tremendously important to me. He's an amazing American, you know, in a, in a band of Brits, this American technical drummer. And I was just so, you know, spurred on by my drummer friends, uh, amazed by his abilities and uh, loved it for that reason. And then the other pillar for me, there's three pillars, but the other of the two big pillars of music was Genesis. And that drummer was Phil Collins. Yeah. So now Phil Collins is an amazing, amazing drummer. And people uh, think of him as the kind of cheesy um, pop song dude. Right. Because that's how he made a ton of money and got really, really famous. But prior to that, in the only way I recognize him <laughs> is as Genesis's drummer. And he was phenomenal in that regard. Then I have one more pillar, and it's Brian Eno, because I had friends that um, turned me on to Brian Eno early, who's a uh, eclectic British um, songwriter, but also more famous as a producer. Right. Produced Talking Heads, produced U2, mm -hmm. produced uh, Dave Matthews, yeah. uh, I think. Uh, produced the Cold, best sorry. Coldplay album. Coldplay, Coldplay. Coldplay yeah. Yeah. The best album is the Brian Eno record. And then Brian Eno um, appeared <clears throat> on as a producer, although it's just credit on one song, um, of my favorite album of Genesis, which is The Lamb Lies Down on Broadway. Right. Brian Eno's name is in there. So, like, there's... Uh, it was beginning to form this, like, group of of largely British people that I started really realizing were the core of my music existence. Do you have, kind of looking in hindsight, do you have any idea why that's what you were drawn to and not the Springsteen, the band, American Roots Rock? Um... I think I was at the time I was an incredible fan of the um, the music of like the thickness of the music, okay, and these incredible players putting together such an uh, you know an amazing masterpiece, and then the lyrics like were the bonus that sailed on top of this 
incredible composition and I was really into the complexity of it whereas you know I wasn't getting that so much from the band and Springsteen Um, you know it took me until later in life to realize like the the intense beauty although I had because of being Beatles I had that. You had the storytelling well. background, yeah. But with I, the Beatles, I needed something else. Very like mathematical, formulaic approach to building songs. I yeah. think so, and I think I was just like mm. I was overwhelmed and and just incredibly gratified to find bands that were bottomless wells of discovery. <laughs> so you could listen to a yes song. We don't know anything about no. that. <laughs> <laughs> you could listen to a yes song over and over again, the same one. And by and by that I mean the, the studio version, because like you guys listen to the same fish song yeah. but different live versions Absolutely. this was just like listening to the one album over and over again and finding new stuff in it right 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 but so um if we had to play oh and the incredibly important thing to say about uh the yes album close to the edge is that's one of the first ones that trey and i bonded over as friends that's like that album for you guys yep pretty young um at his uh father's house um, I, I recall an evening we were writing crazy songs and uh, we took a break and he put on the song Close to the Edge and we all just sort of sat back in the couch until all of a sudden he jumped up and pulled the needle off the, the record and he goes, we can do that. We can do better than that. <laughs> and, and I remember just the audacity. I looked at my friend Mark Dover and I was like, yeah, sure. Okay, rolled eyes, you know, at Trey. And, uh, well, I think, he, I think he's done it. I think he proved that he, he could do better than I that. I mean, what would Fish be without Trey's ambition from oh my that, God, that inception? And yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that early point in the career. That's, oh, wow, that's wild. You yeah. talk about yes, um, whereas Fish obviously changes their set list every night. Yes did a thing a year ago, which I thought was crazy, in that I think they released about nine or ten shows from a fall 1972 tour. Oh, my so God. So it was like where the dead was during Europe 72. They released these ten shows, and I think each of them has the exact same set list, and they're all on Spotify, and you can go through them and see they're separated by seconds, like roundabout, the difference between one roundabout and the other is like only like two seconds. They were so precise. <laughs> I'm thinking, why did they release 10 of these which sound... I've listened to all of them. Identical. All, I can't tell the difference, but I guess somebody can. <laughs> that's funny. That's, yeah. that, that is, that's interesting because... It's the ultimate set list. They though. did not stretch. You know, They didn't have jam session, sections that much. I mean, maybe in a song called um, Starship Trooper... Uh, Steve Howe maybe, maybe didn't play the exact same lead every time. Right. But for the most part, these things were, were written down, consciously right. uh, crafted uh, by, you know, consummate music students, you could tell. Um, so uh, um, this other uh, drummer, Alan White, then took over for Bill Bruford uh, in Yes. And he was also, I think he was a British guy. And uh, later, Alan White went on and played with John Lennon. So that kind of ties this to the Beatles, which is kind of cool. But uh, Alan White then became the de facto Yes drummer for a long, long time. So when people think of Yes drummer, they don't think of Bill Bruford, sadly, to me, because uh, Fragile and Close to the Edge are their quintessential albums and their best uh, lineup, which had uh, also Chris Squire on keyboards. Uh, on bass and uh, Rick Wakeman on keyboard. Sorry, because the Yes album had Tony Kay on keys. Um, anyway, so that's a little bit. If you were going to play songs yeah, let's play from some. there, I would definitely play um, uh, 
uh, I mean, it's it's their most famous and possibly at the time their their most uh, accessible song. But but Roundabout is a song that never stops giving. Oh, and yeah, it's amazing. It, I was, I I saw a marching band from Ramsey, New Jersey, once play Roundabout, and it was still great. And, and I just recently heard it on a car ride from Maryland, and I was tired and I, I needed an ear break. And it came on, and instead of an ear break, my friend turned it up. <laughs> and I was about to say, turn this shit off. I've heard this song way too many times. And then I realized, oh, my God. <laughs> I hadn't heard Roundabout in about a year or more, and it was just unbelievably good. It put me On in, the road with the levels up. On the, on the road with the levels up, and you hear how thick and masterful it is. Right. So that would be, if you had to play a Yes song, I'd play that. But also the song that Trey in the middle of... You know, pick the album up, and that's. Uh, I would at least play the intro, the first two minutes, if you could, of Close to the Edge. Okay. Because that's just that stunning intro. music.
fish, yeah. It's like doom doom. No, it's like doom 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 Incredible stuff. It sounds like he's hitting garbage can lids together or something. It's just gorgeous. Yeah. Maybe play that one too. Yeah. (laughs) The fish. Yeah. So um, that's Pillar 1 was Yes. Pillar 2 was Genesis. And um, it rapidly, for me, became the way that I wanted to write music. Okay. Was, um, I I think I mentioned before, but just to be clear, Peter Gabriel was uh, one of the founding members of Genesis and was the chief songwriter and singer of Genesis. And that, to me, is the only real Genesis. After that, it became the Phil Collins Project. Okay. Or after he left. And then when when Peter Gabriel left, he then made three amazing solo albums, the third of which... Um, they call Melt because his face is melting, but they were all just called Peter Gabriel. Okay. Um, but the one called Melt was produced by this guy named Steve Lillywhite. Yes. Steve Lillywhite then went on to produce um, two Fish albums. He produced Billy Breeze and Joy. Yes. And uh, the, the reason he's notable is because he's also a British guy who did a lot of stuff with Robert Fripp, Brian Eno. And possibly even David Bowie. Yeah. So these pillars uh, in my high school were forming, and we become evident later. Trey was, of course, absorbing and listening to all this stuff, too. And you can totally hear it in, in some of the music. If you listen to some of this stuff, you hear it. But um, Peter Gabriel became my idol, my songwriting idol, by far. And the last album that Genesis wrote with Peter Gabriel was The Lamb Lies Down on Broadway. And that is an absolute masterpiece. It's a Mm. double album masterpiece that you have to hear. And on that song is a track that was Trey's and my favorite called Carpet Crawlers. And you should probably play that if you can. Let's throw that on. And that one has, you know, lyrics. I mean, that to me is a combination of music and lyrics and imagery and everything. It just has it all. It's, um, uh, through the door, the harvest feast is lit by candlelight. It's the bottom of a staircase that spirals out of sight. It's like some of the most beautiful thoughts and, and images are in there. And, uh, they don't necessarily add to the story 
And that's kind of what I liked about it. I was like, I can take what I want from that and, and apply it to the story. The fleas cling to the golden fleece, hoping they'll find peace. Each thought and gesture, a card and serenade. There's no hiding in memory, there's no wrong to His solar solo work is just incredible. He's he was tied in with these musicians in in many ways, as we mentioned before. Um, but uh, his solo stuff is just so beautiful and kind of simplistic. Yeah. And yet he was an amazing recording pioneer and mastered stuff using two tape decks before there were real long echoes. So he would actually have two tape decks and he would turn the um, erase head off but keep the record head on and then have actually a long loop. It would go across the room from one deck to the other and the distance and the length of the tape would be the the length of the echo. So he would have his friend Robert Fripp, an incredible guitarist, Mm -hmm. playing into that and it would echo, you know, maybe sometimes five seconds later after he played. Hmm. And they would make it, you know, they would cut the tape until it matched the rhythm of the song that they were playing. I actually had to go in with scissors and tape. And, uh, you know, so there's that kind of effect on Brian Eno's early albums. And it was that that made all these other bands want him as a producer, including you 2 I feel like... If you really, from a production standpoint, and <clears throat> I guess just in rock music, I don't know if there's a more influential producer and kind of the origins of the sounds that you hear from the mid-1970s to today in rock music all can be found in Brian Eno. Um, I'm curious for you, you know, lyrically, he had such a unique approach. Yes. Uh, the oblique strategies, I want to say, those cards that he would <laughs> yeah. put out and they would just have a concept on it. Yes. He would start to write off of that. And that's how, right. That, so you could buy a card deck that that you, you just sort of pull out and try to write a song about, I guess, is what They he, were like an idea or a command. Some or bizarre something. thing that he out, came out of his head. Yeah. Did he that so ever in way like. Uh, no, but my friend uh, Stefan Scherber, hey Stefan, um, had that deck that we okay. looked at, and it kind of freaked us out that oh, wow. Brian Eno did this. But but at the time, I wasn't really using it as a compositional tool. Yeah, okay. I'd like okay. to try it now. Yeah, yeah, that'd be interesting. <laughs> yeah, 
So um, that album, uh, Another Green World, yeah. was the one also Trey and I bonded over. And uh, Fish even played a song from it that you should play the Eno version and maybe the Fish version. Sure. Um, because they change in tempo, as you mentioned earlier. Yeah. Um, and that song is called I'll Come Running. Yes. And uh, to complete that phrase, it's I'll Come Running to Tie Your Shoe. And it's very one of the funny. sweetest it's love a, songs I feel like I've ever heard. Yes. Like what a basic concept of how you're going to care for someone throughout their life. Yes. I'll find a place somewhere in the corner. I'm going to waste the rest of my days just watching patiently from the window. Just waiting seasons change something. Oh no, my dreams will pull you through that garden gate. I want to be the wandering sailor. We're silhouettes by the light of the moon. I sit playing solitaire by the window. Just waiting seasons change our heart. You'll see one day these dreams will pull you through my door. And I'll come running to tie your shoe. I'll come running to tie your shoe I'll come running to tie your shoe I'll come running to tie your shoe
So when we were sophomores at Princeton Day School, me and Trey, two albums came out that were pivotal. And uh, one you guys can guess because Trey did it for Halloween, and that's Remain in Light by Talking Heads, also produced by Brian Eno. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Talking Heads had a guitarist named Adrian Ballou. Yes. Um, Just put that in the back of your mind. The other album was the one I've mentioned before, 1980, Peter Gabriel Melt. But... The thing that when you go and see Peter Gabriel live, still to this day, is this bass player named Tony Levin. And Tony Levin would play a regular bass, like a Fender bass, but with little tiny rubber cups on the ends of his fingers that were attached to drumsticks. And so he would hammer, so he learned how to play that way, but then he would swap out that guitar for a thing I'd never seen in my life called a Chapman stick. And that's probably about a 12-string instrument that extends lower than the bass range and higher than the guitar range. And you have to teach yourself how to play it because you can't just pick it up and play it. And you look unusual playing it unless you're Tony Levin. And then he's probably the only guy that can look cool playing that thing. And he became an expert at it. And uh, Tony Levin is like one of the most sought-after studio bass player, so much so that Michael Jackson used him in, um, um, I want to say maybe it was the song Black and White. Okay. Uh, like, so so much that when I heard it, I was like, that's Tony Levin. That's He's big. playing the stick. Yeah. That's him. I think it's Black and White or else bad. Anyway, it's, it's, it's one of those. Um, but so um, the people that I, I just wanted to mention in that were Adrian Ballou, uh, from the, talk, the Talking Heads album that just came out, um, Tony Levin on bass. I had mentioned earlier Bill Bruford um, being the drummer for Yes, and then Robert Fripp as the guitarist for um, Brian Eno occasionally. Trey, this was a pivotal moment in our friendship and our songwriting uh, evolution. We went to a King Crimson concert in Princeton at Richardson Auditorium. Sitting down before the show, Trey looked at me and he said, we have to play on this stage someday. And we did. (laughs) 25 years later, I sang Strange Design with Trey on that stage. Um, And uh, at the time, it was called Alexander Hall. Now it's called Richardson Auditorium. It's a beautiful place. If you're ever near Princeton, at least walk by it. It's a circular, stunning building. And they don't lock it during the day. So you can walk in and look at it. It's a great place to catch some classical music if you're there for an extended stay. They always play. They have they have a large classical program that they want to play there, wow. the Princeton Symphony. Uh, it's a wonderful, wonderful place. But that King Crimson lineup was Tony Levin on bass, Bill Bruford on drums, <laughs> Adrian Ballou on guitar, and then the famous Robert Fripp who sits down playing uh, guitar, sits on a stool, oh. and plays in the corner. And uh, depending on his dep- no, and depending on his mood, he'll pull that stool way back so he's uh, like almost behind an amp. Like if he's angry with the crowd, okay. And otherwise, he'll come out a little further and he'll admonish the crowd. He doesn't like photos being taken. Mm-hmm. He's just this consummate, tiny little British gentleman, but also a little bit irate. Like, yeah. and he's this mechanical player. And the album that they were touring upon that blew me and Trey and our two friends Mark and Dave away was discipline and that first song they opened with was discipline and it takes discipline to play it so you should play discipline let's do it
interesting. It kind of gets to the, 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 um, the discussion of who's the actual frontman. Like when you think of ACDC, the frontman could be Angus Young, even though like Brian Johnson is like singing the vocals. Whereas the era of King Crimson, you almost think of Robert Fripp as the frontman, having been in every King Crimson incarnation. It was Agent Blue who's singing and playing the guitar and being right. like the showman. I think Fripp is happy to have someone else be the frontman, so to speak, right. for every in- different incarnation. Exactly. Right. Yeah. No, and that that's kind of cool. So the most recent time I saw him, he played, they played, for the first time I got to see... Um, a song from my favorite King Crimson album, which is called Lark's Tongues in Aspic. And they played the song Easy Money. And that's another one we should go out on. Because that concludes uh, what I wanted to... That's the end. Uh, yeah, I wanted to get that arc yeah. kind of described. Trey took me uh, to many concerts, and as I said before, uh, The Grateful Dead among them. And I started relaxing a little bit my progressive versus... The other, other, you know, as as I matured, yeah. But that definitely influenced me to 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 stay in the progressive side, and I'm glad I did because it enabled me to dive really deep and learn about all these guys and all their tendrils that reach into other bands and stuff, and really educate me musically. I gotta ask you. So we've talked about Brian Eno, Robert Fripp a lot. They kind of form these pillars of a lot of what you've listened to, along with Peter Gabriel, Phil Collins, Genesis, but. Um, the song Brian and Robert, I believe, is a, about the two of them. Right. So, um, yes. So that's Brian Eno and Robert Fripp. Right. But the um, the words uh, were written um, by me just kind of about sort of like a, you know, a lonely dude kind yeah. of thing. Um, and... I sat down at a piano during a, a writing session with Trey and was kind of doing sort of simplistic chords. I think it was actually on, an, uh, on a keyboard with an organ setting. And uh, he kind of said, that sounds, that sounds like a Brian Eno song. And what song is that? And I said, no, no, I'm just, I'm, I'm kind of writing here. And uh, he said, oh, cool. And put his guitar into frip mode mm. with super feedback. It's like, <laughs> so much so that we decided we're going to name this song Brian and Robert before there were lyrics on it. And this is my memory uh, of of how it happened. And, of course, the way that that I worked at the time, I would have a sheaf of lyrics. And I think it was one of those things where Trey kind of grabbed it, or I did, and just started singing after we had recorded the the music part the the you know the the foundation, so you had the foundation we had the music foundation part. now it's lyrics time like we did Velvet Sea that way too where I like Trey worked hard on getting this really cool sonic scape now it's time for the lyrics okay so yeah, we wrote a few songs that way yeah so so and it turns out Brian and Robert people thought of as possibly uh, you know a, a couple who knows maybe this person was missing his partner. I don't know, uh, but it seemed to sort of fit well with the, the subject. That was that was my nursery rhyme for my son in his first nine months of life. That what put him to sleep every night. Wow. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> Until he could understand what it was about. Yeah, I mean, I always liked like the idea of like the lonely, like the isolation. That's, yeah. That's a, associated with that was the first fish song I ever heard. Oh wow! On the uh, intro to Bittersweet Motel, and I was like, "Who is this band?" I, I'd heard Fish. Oh, fantastic! But I had no idea. What they sounded like. Well, that's one of my favorite Fish songs. When they play that, I'm always incredibly excited because yeah, it's that. like like Dirt. They play it rarely, 
and yet it's a ballad that I uh, really enjoy. It's a great little breath of fresh air, and that's a song I'd love to hear them at some point. Just see what happens if they stretched it out a little bit. Then it would be sonic, then it would be like Eno. It would be it like would. A Brian Eno. You got like a sonic underpinnings there for it. seen a bunch of them and it's always like when Trey spends like three minutes between the songs talking to Paige and then talking to Fish and talking to Michael and back and that comes out then he got comes out it's like okay it's either that or Stash they'll like they'll <laughs> like talk for like five minutes and you'll think like oh there's a huge rarity coming and then Stash will come and everyone like claps along but yeah. <laughs> I like when they're when they're talking for a long time and they finally realize oh we've been talking for a long time and then they start laughing yeah <laughs> and I think they're laughing because they still haven't figured out what song to play <laughs> like what are we gonna actually do now <laughs> <laughs> is that just like Fishman telling them some anecdote like what happened to him on the way to the show or he like sees like something funny in the crowd yeah I mean <laughs> one can only guess yeah I've got a question it seems like David Bowie's always had a really big presence in Fish's career I mean less of a direct influence more of just a touchstone in terms of how to grow and function as artists um, what did you take from Bowie if anything from a lyrical standpoint so <clears throat> I had uh, Hunky Dory and Ziggy Stardust as like a large part of my musical foundation. Both of those albums are still in my absolute favorites. Um, but also Station to Station, mm. I really liked. Um, if you want to play, I think the fish the fish family knows Ziggy now, mm-hmm. and I think they know Hunky Dory because of Life on Mars. Probably people explored that. But Station to Station had a song that Trey and I listened to as we were driving once on the radio and Trey was like uh, like climbing the, the walls we couldn't figure out who it was until finally he sang you know because there's a long cool jam in the beginning oh interesting yeah it's got this really cool really great and Trey's like who is this is this Zappa is this I can't figure out what am I? and he's all, all these guesses <laughs> and he's like angry because he knows it and then uh, Bowie starts singing he's like oh it's Bowie <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. 
All right. Getting into our last segment here, we kind of threw around this idea of the beauty of mistakes in music and having Tom here to talk about his uh, kind of songwriting experience and his collaborations with various uh, musicians. You know, I think we all know any of us who's ever tried to write songs, any of us who listens to songs, any of us who listens to Fish knows that oftentimes the best moments come from unintentional uh, mistakes. Uh, I think immediately of the 11-22-94 funky bitch that apparently was going to end, Fishman hit the wrong drum note or uh, hit hit the wrong drum riff and they went off on a 22 minute jam that never would have happened without (laughs) that um so we kind of talked about a couple of fish songs that um you know as as we were preparing for this episode tom offered us some background in terms of the mistakes that really crafted them and um one of the songs that we wanted to talk about is a song that has i think really personal importance to you obviously your friendship with Trey and to fish where they are right now that's um, backwards down the number line and we kind of touched upon the themes of the joy album earlier in our first episode but um just curious kind of what intent what initially inspired you to write backwards down the number line um people may have heard Different version, not different versions of this story, but but may have heard this story before. Yeah. Um, and I try not to tell it differently because it's it's how how it happened. Um, but basically, Trey um, was going through a um, kind of a court mandated situation um, up in Saratoga Springs, New York, and um, at the time, this would be uh, from 2006 to 2008, roughly. There, there was, you know, some overlap, I believe, on both of those years. Um, he kind of went incommunicado. And um, I've been since corrected by either his uh, father or uh, stepmother about whether that was mandatory or not Okay. to his program. But for whatever reason, I was not in touch with Trey for a long time. And ran into Ernie, his dad, um, at the mall and said something. I'd love to reach out to Trey. I know he's got a birthday coming up. love to say hi to him. I haven't said hi to him in, it's got to be more than nine months or something along those lines. And I uh, have some songs you know, I'm thinking about. And I know he would, whether we can, you know, openly communicate or whatever or meet, I know he would love to have some of my lyrics and and so he could be writing because I know he's writing wherever he is yeah, or whatever yeah, he's yeah, doing. Yeah. And Ernie said, of course. And believe it or not, Trey's on email. And that was a first. Mm-hmm. That was a first. Trey didn't do email prior to that. Interesting. And <laughs> I, I was uh, overjoyed hearing that and um, went home, got the, uh, uh, you know, realized how close I was to Trey's birthday and wrote a birthday song to him. Okay. And that's what just spilled out was the lyrics to Backwards Down the Number Line. So, I mean, a song like this doesn't sound to me like these are lyrics you labored over. N- no. no, nope. That one just, off the top of my head, I knew I was writing to my pal. I knew he was having a birthday. Yeah. And I clicked send. <laughs> and uh, that's when one of those wonderful things that used to happen back in the age of faxing and voice uh, 
sorry, answering machines um, would be where I would, uh, sometimes I would fax Trey lyrics or leave them on his answering machine, come back after work, and my answering machine would have an entire song, <laughs> like uh, N-I-C-U or whatever, on it. Um, and uh, that's what happened. Trey uh, emailed me an answer almost immediately. It was just OMG, like, oh, my God. <laughs> and then... Uh, called me with the first version of Backwards Down the Number Line. Wow. Which um, didn't have that, uh, the bridge, but was everything else. Okay. And so, I mean, the song... The song was solid itself, and it's, right it's beautiful. There. And it's actually a version that I kind of like, I think should come out. It's uh, even, even to me better, uh, you know, just because of its originality. Happy, happy, So this was a song, it was written directly to Trey. Did you have any thoughts? I mean, I personally, when that song opened up Hampton Night 2, it sounded like this new, like, like they opened up with this first set, this first set of Fish Classics. It's like 14, 15 songs. And then they open up the second set with Backwards Down the Number Line, a song that to that point nobody had ever heard. And it got that. pretty good recognition. Great recognition. And, and that song to me feels like this, like, Okay, now this is the next chapter. I mean, and acceptance, not recognition, because no one recognized it. Right, it yeah, great, acceptance. Great acceptance, yeah. Um, you know, to me, that song, I smile from ear to ear every time I hear it, because it's like, my thought always goes to, there is no fish without this song, you know, nowadays. Yeah, it brought, brought, brought fish kind of out of, the, out of the hiatus void. Right. And uh, it's kind of, kind of nice when you think about it. It was a... Music brought us out of that void. Yeah, you know? yeah, absolutely. Like the oldest thing that Trey and I did was songwriting, and, and songwriting brought us out. Yep. Did you ever think at the time um, you're writing about one of your friends on a very personal level? But did you ever think that this is a song that's really about friendship in general? I do. I mean, I like that it's been adopted as a birthday song. Yeah. <laughs> uh, for some people, um, very much so. Yeah, it's a it's a song people who have longtime friendships can relate to because it talks about 
uh, you know, going back in time and thinking about when you, you were younger and uh, pondering, uh, you know, the things that have happened in between then and now yeah. uh, that were relevant and uh, the ups and the downs that, that create a friendship. Did it matter to you at the time if this led to a newfound writing partnership or did you just, was it just a note? I never doubted the the partnership. I mean, we've gone through periods where there's been gaps in our songwriting and in our communication and uh, never that worried about that. However, this one was longer longer than the other. So I was expecting after this and I was happy, very happy after this that we would, um, you know, continue now on a more regular basis and sure yeah. enough that's happened yeah i um i saw only three shows in 2009 uh fenway and alpine valley and they didn't play it at any of those shows and then i moved overseas for a year and i came back and i saw a bunch of shows in summer 2010 and the first time i saw backwards down the number line they played it for 14 and a half minutes and it was at Blossom in uh, in Ohio, and they play this very dark jam off of it, and it was really surreal to hear this song that is so happy and about such renewal now being used as a way to kind of channel the dark side of fish, which you know from a jamming standpoint has always been where a lot of really interesting music comes from. Right. Um, do you have any particular memories of hearing it live for the first time, or of any particular versions that you like that? That first time was incredibly heartwarming. Um, that one is one where I, I we alluded to in part one of this um, podcast. That's one where I do feel sometimes eyes upon me, like, "Hey, how cute! This is the you know the friendship song kind of right, thing." Right, right. Um, so, uh, you know, that one I'm always also thinking of my friend Liz, who's in the audience, not liking the lyrical part, you know, okay. <laughs> which is hilarious. Um, th- that doesn't bother me, by the way. I sort of yeah, we, yeah, yeah. We equally, um, you know. Uh, rib each other over the fact that she doesn't like backwards down the number line. That's fine. But um, I think the genuine fact, the genuine aspect of it, which might be what you're alluding to, is kind of the nature of friendship. It's almost too emotional sometimes. You don't want it, like, these emotions have no place at a rock show. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and it's like two dudes being emotional. That's, like, hard for people to grasp, too. But it's funny, I, when I was at uh, Double Chocolate Night at the Baker's Dozen, I sat behind the stage, actually. It was the only time I've ever sat behind a stage at a fish show. And they played backwards down the number line. And, um, you know, it was after significant jamming and some great song selection. And um, I remember looking at the whole crowd. And every time the lights would come on when they would hit a peak, everybody had their hands in the air. Everybody had a smile on their face. Nice. And I said... This, more than anything, is why the band plays a song so often. Yes. Yeah. Like, you, you show them that you love this song, too. <laughs> I think so. I think so. I mean, it's such a happy, cool jam. Uh, I love it. I love the chords. I love everything about it. Yeah. Such a great song. Like, Fish is Sugar Magnolia, which to me is interesting because for a band that's been around since 1983, to have the song come out in 2009, I mean, that much to the band and the fan base is really cool. Nice. And it's just... Whether closing sets or opening sets or jamming, it's a big-hearted song that you'd have to be really, really curmudgeonly not to get some enjoyment out of. Nice. Which yeah, it makes me want to just hug right. a bunch of neighbors at the fish rides. <laughs> <laughs> That's perfect. So from a lyrical standpoint, we had talked kind of before we went to recording that there was this big mistake in or like unrealized aspect of backwards oh, on the number. Oh yeah. So. What I'm talking about is things that happen in the recording process. Okay. 
And uh, Trey and I always contend, and, and like you know, we've mentioned before, we're not super religious, but possibly are spiritual. Uh-huh. Um, that the the songs are sort of swirling around us. We can feel them, and uh, if we can trick the muses to reveal the songs to us in some way, uh, whether it's a mistake that we make or something, and suddenly there's the song in front of us materialize, we'll take it, right? Because it's hard to get the song out of, out of the ether intact, you know, without injecting too much of yourself into it. Totally. Um, uh, you know, the contention being that the songs are out there. That we just have to realize them and You're put them the down. You're just the conduits for it. Yeah, like it's yeah. The, uh, sort of. That's the that's the thought. I some songs I definitely believe that for. Some songs are all directly I've written with no muse help at all. But um, uh, in this case, uh, the the mistakes I'm talking about are Trey and I use a multi-track recording system where we'll put down track after track. Some will be bass, guitar, vocals, and Sometimes by the time we're done tracking uh, tracks one through five, by the time we're about to do six and it wasn't what we had intended back when we recorded track one. And sometimes it's enough like we've already moved on mentally away from the song that we'll actually even walk away from it. So there's lots of unrealized songs out there that never became songs. So um, in the case of... um, uh, for the song Secret Smile, I'm sorry, I, I, I'm going to go back to Backers Down the Number Yeah, yeah line. totally. But so for, for this song Secret Smile, Trey and I had recorded, um, uh, done a lot of work in the morning on a song we didn't know yet was going to be Secret Smile. And we knew that it kind of had a almost church-like reverence to it. And so he and I said, you know what would be really cool here is a choir. If an entire choir could be singing uh, in the background of this song. And we'll figure out what lyrics go on it later. But let's do some sort of a choir. And Trey and I, because um, we're only two people, we figured we'll do two tracks of each of us singing. So that would be four people, each on a different note. And we started, for no reason, just singing, hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on. And then, like I said, we went and had a lunch and then didn't weren't in the right mood to get back to it. Okay. We wrote other songs. Trey, the next day, thank goodness, um, pressed play on it and was like, I love it, and started singing the Secret Smile lyrics to it, wow. not knowing that right at the part where the hold on came that Trey and I sang the night before was right in the um, chorus that he oh, wow. had created for Secret Smile. Yeah. And it worked so perfectly that he was almost brought to tears. And when I heard it, I was almost brought to tears like... What the hell? And it was something that we wouldn't have been able to figure out if that wasn't like handed to us by the universe. Totally. Yeah. Sometimes when the evening's young, the wind dies down, the setting sun crochets the clouds with yarn so fine, and fills the oceans with red wine. The trees, the sky, the forest fair, give a flavor to the air. I raise my glass and in a while you dance away the sea. (laughs) 
So that's a mistake. The other mistake that you were referring to that I had kind of hinted to you earlier about backwards down the number line that was fortuitous was Trey in practicing it um, during kind of the chorus part. Um, he started singing uh, from the lyrics. He was going, oh, my friend, backwards down the number line. Oh, my friend, backwards down the number line. He recorded that onto his iPhone. Okay. Um, and then as he played it back, he realized that he liked it better. Uh-huh. And he started singing it and hearing it as, all my friends come backwards down the number line. And it totally makes sense to the lyrics. It's like when you think about it, you're talking about this incredible friendship. Yeah. And now you bring in all my friends and how they all, all also are, you know, are represented on this number right. line of, of years. Right. And uh, well, so when it so works live. for me. It's massive. And it's all, all of us. And, and it makes me as a lyricist look to, uh, or feel like a genius. Like I came up with that, but really that was a mistake. You know? <laughs> <laughs> or, or, or a tray, uh, incredible tray feat of, of, of songwriting. Right. Let's give it to that. And then I have I have one more um, that I forgot. Oh, oh. So that's uh, Secret Smile and All My Friends. I have one more idea about a, a mistake that happened in the recording process and, and was just incredible. And I can even play you the version. Um, and it's a song that you guys both happen to love. It's Ghost. Oh, man. Mm. <laughs> Oh man! And so the way that that was written um, was me on drums, and before we had pressed record, I was just sitting there, kind of doing the only beat I know how. But for whatever for whatever reason, it sounded great on the on the kit that we had in the, okay. in, the in the little barn where we were recording. And um, can, can I can I jump in? Yeah. Do you remember? When you recorded it, because they debuted it in summer '97, did you record it that spring? Do you well, know? this this one, um, this version that we can play, the original version of Ghost, came out on Trampled by Lambs and Pecked by the Dove, yeah. which is a um, Beth put it together from three recording sessions in Stowe, Vermont, okay, in farmhouses, okay, where we recorded between, I believe, '95 and '96. Oh wow! So goes or ninety, back. yeah, ninety five and ninety six. So it goes far, that far. I back. think so. Oh, I think wow. so. Yeah, read her liner notes to be sure okay. that it's not ninety six, ninety seven. But I think it's ninety five, ninety six. Did you, you know, before before you go on with this story, did you get a sense when you were writing this song, like it's a song that really seems to have changed Fish. There's really no precedent for a song like Ghost before Ghost. It's. Hmm. So talking heads, it's so 
like everything that you were talking about in terms of your own musical evolution, it goes back to, um, well, it's incredibly funky, incredibly dark. And that's the sound that the band overtook for like 97, 98, 99, 2000. Uh, Was there any sense when you're writing this, like looking ahead, that this is a directional shift for the band? Or were you just thinking in the moment? uh, uh, For me, no. It's like, great, let's record another one. (laughs) But but for Trey, if you ask him that, uh, you know, I've, I've referred to him before as being pretty prescient about where he's going musically. Right. If he were to have thoughts like that during the writing of it, I wouldn't be surprised. Okay. Because I walked in on him like when he had hair, long hair down to his ass um, in high school. I walked into him bouncing in a mirror with a guitar. (laughs) (laughs) Trying to figure out if he could do it. (laughs) And playing as he was bouncing. And uh, sure enough, that meant to me later that he had envisioned himself on a trampoline. Right, he was trying to... And he made it Can happen. I do this in front of 20,000 exactly. people? Exactly. Okay, I can do it in front of myself. Exactly. <laughs> so if during the writing of Ghost, he's thinking, wow, this is funky and might send us in a different direction, that wouldn't surprise me, Right. but right. it didn't occur to me. Okay, okay. So carry on. Oh, okay, so uh, again, um, laying down the musical foundation, I was on drums. Trey, I think, immediately started with bass. Um, and, uh, you know... We recorded that, and then he had this, like, his eyes lit up, and he picked up the guitar and was doing those, like, little chop it, like, geeky. Yeah. The, geeky is so cool, the guitar. And I loved it. And I think it was just those three tracks. And he said, well, now we need vocals. And I I had written the, the song, Ghost. I'd written it. Um, but I think I be, even began, like, I went up to a mic... Because earlier I'd done, you know, Farmhouse and um, Velvet Sea and some of the other ones. And I was like the guy coming up with the melodies. Trey like said, no, no, no. He didn't want me to mess up his idea and snatched the lyrics from me. And he put me on the play record, you know, press record engineering spot. And he said, I'm going to do it in this cool staccato. He had this idea. Okay. And so he just started phrasing it in an amazingly unique way I never would have come up with. So I feel I never told you the story of the ghost that I once knew. You know, he like had different spacing between it that I never would have figured out. I'm more uniform. I need things sort of add up. But Trey just sort of went. And rather than um, let him do maybe four and then press stop, and then figure out the next four, which we, that's like kind of one of our standard methods. Okay. To make sure that everything lines up and right. works well. Uh, I just left it on record and he just did the whole song, uh-huh. coming up with these spacings on the fly. And then the amazing thing, the ending of the book is uh, maybe he's still with me. Uh, the latch was left unhook, uh, unhooked. Um, he's waiting in the wind and rain. I simply haven't looked. Right when he said, I simply haven't looked, the guitar went, Oh my and God. it ended. <laughs> and Trey and I looked at each other, and you can hear him on this version. He goes, Wah! <laughs> like screams, like it was meant to be, it was preordained, that it was exactly <laughs> that length. And so we knew again that, you know, the gods were like, like patting us on the back. Right there with you. There you go. That's how we wanted this song to be. <laughs> I feel like Never told you 
talk about the way he was singing uh, during that song or during the recording thematically Ghost has changed so much over 20 years I, I don't know if maybe I, you can allude, you can answer this Dave um, I don't know of a single fish song that's changed as much structurally as Ghost yet still retains this ominous this song is going to jam but it's going to be a dark kind of exploratory jam then Ghost and you go from that 97 very staccato. Right, was the 97 was the very staccato. Then 98, it was more like a kind of like a drum. He kind of gets those sirens going and they just fade into it. Right. And, and then the more recent version, what, it's been like since 99 or 2000 thereabouts. I think since uh, they came back in 2.0, right, it's got okay. that very rock intro to it. and um, But it still retains that like that, that structure where like when they sing these parts, it breaks down. And then it jams, but it's it's interesting to me. I mean, have you heard them write a song that changes like this one has? Good point. I no, no, I can't come up with one off the top of my head. It kind of changed. The versions of "Free" from 1995 are very different than the ones from after Billy Breezes recorded. That's true. There's the middle jam. Had the big shoegaze style middle jam, and then he decided to add the guitar solo. And then go for kind of with the funky guitar solo, then close it out. Okay. So that one kind of changed on the fly. What was the song recently that I guess maybe it was Mike's where someone reminded Trey about a second jam? Oh or, right, yes, oh, Mike's song. That yeah. was Andrew Hits, right? Yeah, so Andrew Hits was um, yes, that came back in 2015 in Nashville. I remember right. I was there when they came back with it, and and I didn't realize what was going on. Like really? it was a big thing in the taper community. <laughs> That I didn't know about. Well, right. it was on. It's uh, on Twitter. It was on Twitter that day that he, he's a big, he's he's big on the fish Twitter community. And, and he told the story about being backstage. He, yeah, he had a chance to meet Trey. He suggested it to Hart. Trey. And uh, he, I, of the thousands of fans that have met Trey and have wanted to say something specific to Trey, none of them came as prepared as Drew did. Uh. Drew queued up 
the 7-14-2000 Mike song, which was the last time that they went into this jam. Because uh. he had a- and he asked Trey, as the story goes, do you remember this? And Trey, you know, said no. And uh, as an artist, you know, it doesn't really surprise you that he's not thinking about what they did on a specific date in yeah. 2000. And Drew said, okay, well, listen to this. And he listened to it and got the chords right in his head. Huh. And then you can see on the webcast... Trey talking to everyone, and they start Mike's song, and the crowd goes crazy because now the crowd, plus everyone at home on Twitter, who knew about it, who knows about is queued up for maybe. Everyone's waiting. Is it going to happen? And then it happened, and it's a great jam. And (laughs) I was really lucky. uh, That was August. I got one in Alpine. Yeah, Yeah, twenty fifteen. One of of my favorite shows I've ever seen. Uh, They played a second jam in the Mike song, and right because it used to be the Mike's jam. The second jam with F major. Sometimes they go into simple, which is an F major, or the second jam, Uh, and then they just stopped. And usually, when they play it now, they don't do the second jam very often. Huh? But it was, yeah, that was that was certainly a thing. So that's another one. Just um, this is the end of part two of uh, our interview with Tom Marshall. If you're uh, just getting this and you haven't listened to part one yet, uh, it should be available now on iTunes or Stitcher or wherever you get to be on the pond, so we can have it there. And uh, some of the themes that we ended up exploring in both part one and part two, just to recap, were uh, how Trey and Tom became connected through music, uh, the music that Tom listened to during Fish's hiatus. And on musical accidents and all my friends, and I guess it also would say uh, '70s and '80s progressive rock. Yeah, <laughs> definitely. Um, so, just a quick reminder where you guys can find us online and whatnot. We are on Twitter at underscore Beyond the Pond. Uh, we have a Medium page where we post a quick little blurb about each episode, medium.com backslash beyond the pond, and our ever-growing Spotify playlist, which is going to grow massively after this episode, uh, Beyond the Pond Podcast Songs Podcast. Is it podcast playlist? Um, I think the playlist is actually called Beyond the Pond Podcast Songs. Beyond the Pond Podcast Songs. So we'll link to that when we put this episode up so you guys can hear that. That is ever-growing. We're well over about 120 songs there. You press shuffle on it. You go from shoegaze to bluegrass to prog rock, maybe a fish jam here and there that's on Spotify. A little bit of everything for you, plus the war on drugs. Drink. In terms of our publishing structure, you guys know that you can find us uh, every other Tuesday. Uh, Tuesdays have absolutely no feel, so why not go beyond the pond? We uh, have done a little bit of a special publishing here with this episode, but we'll be back in two Tuesdays with our upcoming episode that I think you guys are going to like quite a bit. Um, But before we go, Tom, really want to thank you for your time and for all the thoughts here on uh, uh, your own 
kind of creative background, your relationship with Trey. This has been really cool for us. Oh, well, thank you, Brian, and thank you, Dave, for making the trip down to Princeton, New Jersey, Absolutely. and visiting with me. And I've uh, I've learned a lot too. You guys are consummate. Uh, uh, fish listeners, the type <laughs> of fish listener I love talking to. Sweet. Well, thank you. This has been a, a fantastic afternoon. I've really learned a lot. I've enjoyed this very much. So thank you once again. And on that note, I'm David Goldstein. I am Brian Brinkman. And goodbye. I'm Tom Marshall. And come back in two Tuesdays. We will join together as friends and go... Beyond the pond. <laughs> <laughs>